William Frey, an Episcopal bishop from Colorado, tells a story that he remembered as an experience. While he was a student, he wanted some extra money, so he took some time to read for somebody who was blind. His name was John. And as they got to know each other a little bit better, he, he came to ask the question of what happened when John became blind. And it had all to do with a chemical explosion that unfortunately took his sight. In asking him how he coped with the whole challenge, at the very beginning of realizing that he was going to be blind and everything that it entailed, John recalled a moment when his father, and they lived on a farm, his father, who was a farmer, after weeks of struggling with a trauma, he came one morning into John's bedroom and he said, John, the winter is coming and we, we just need to get the windows right in the barn. So he said, I'm expecting by the time I'm coming home for you to have fixed them. And he just shut the door and left. John felt a whole range of emotions, ranging from self-pity to downright anger, thinking, do you not realize what's just been happening to me? How are you expecting me to do this? But at the same time, ambition welled up within himself, and he decided he was going to do something about it. So he, he, he made his way to the workshop, and feeling his way around, he began to find the right tools that he needed. In his mind, he was kind of half thinking, um, what if I'm going to fall from, 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 from the stairs? What if I'm going to hurt myself? Well, it serves you right, you know, thinking of his dad. Then now you're going to see what you've done and how you've not realized in what a bad state I am. But on the other hand, he thought to himself, I can do this. And he did it. But unbeknown to him, John related to Bishop William Frey, his father, unseen, had been there all the time looking after his son. As we journey in the story of Ruth, one significant thing is seems to be very little talk about God. And you want to ask the question, where is God in the story? And the beautiful thing about the story of Ruth and what we see in the narrative is that actually God's fingerprints are all over this story. And I, I think I want us to look this morning at how God is still present when he doesn't seem to be seen. And I want to call this message unseen but present. A, because I think it's important to track as part of the story, have a God-centered view and track what God is doing. And secondly, because it feels in this pandemic time, we can relate to that. It, it feels like God isn't so present, perhaps. And we want to ask that question. Where is God? And I want to say to you, God may be unseen, but he is present, just like he was in the story of Ruth. And here are the few truths that I think are really important. Truth number one, God won't control you. So at the very beginning of the story, we have Naomi's family, father, wife, and two sons, move from Israel to Moab because of the famine. Now, that wasn't the smartest move. We don't really know for sure because the text doesn't tell us in a condemnation that their action was wrong. But everything about the context, knowing what was happening, knowing what a Jewish person should have done, 
it would tell us that this wasn't the smartest move. Yes, humanly speaking, you want to avoid the famine, you want to care for your family, but spiritually speaking, this would have been an incredibly challenging action to take and probably not the smartest idea. The amazing thing is that God doesn't stop them from doing that. It could have been that God would have spoken to them audibly or maybe in a dream, or God could have sent a priest or a Levite to come and speak to them, or God could have uh, sent another relative that as they were talking about it, they would have said, don't, don't you think that this is a, a bad idea? Or they might have been able to, to, to go to the worship place and be reminded of God's command not to mix with the Gentiles, with those who could have led them astray. It seems like God isn't controlling them. God isn't stopping them from making what potentially it looks like not the best decision that they've ever taken. It was a risky decision. And while there isn't anything clearly said there, we realize that after they arrive in Moab, their sons intermarry with Moabite women, which would have been a total no-no. It would have been the thing that God warned them against because their hearts would depart from him as they were connecting with other nations and connecting with other cultures and connecting with other gods, very often the hearts of the Israelites would go astray from an affection for God himself. Where is God? Well, God won't control you. God didn't control Naomi and her family, none of them. God didn't stop them from making a decision that might not have been the best. And I love that about God. God doesn't treat us like robots. God isn't like some producer in heaven and we are the cast and we are doing what God is asking us to do uncontrolled like puppets on a string. No, God gives us freedom of choice. And several times in the scriptures, if you think of David's story and David's biggest mess up in his life, his affair with Bathsheba, God could have stopped that, and he did. He sent some warnings that David could have read, and David broke some boundaries that he should have kept. But still, David had free will. He had a choice to make, whether wise or dumb. In the same way, Peter is warned by Jesus. Jesus is saying to Peter, you will betray me, and he gives him the right signs and signals about how that was going to happen. And yet, Jesus doesn't control people, and he doesn't control Peter, and he doesn't stop him from betraying Jesus. A young rich ruler, a very successful young businessman, comes to Jesus and asks him about eternal life. And Jesus put some choices before him. And he was an upstanding guy, morally speaking, but he had one thing missing, and he's not willing to let go of that thing. And Jesus doesn't go chasing after him, doesn't control him. He gives him the freedom to follow him or not to follow him. There is a God in the story of Ruth, and the God that we see in the story of Ruth is a God who won't control us. Yes, he's sovereign. Yes, he's incredibly redemptive, as we're going to see later, but he is not a controlling God. And you know, that fills me with a sense of fear, <laughs> because that means that I can make like Naomi's family, like Peter, like David, like the rich young ruler, I can make some pretty dumb choices. 
And that makes me doubly careful. And I wonder if we need to remember this morning that before we take any decisions, we have the freedom to do what we want to do. But how does this fit in with God's character, with God's plan for our life, with what God is wanting? Because we could find ourselves way down the road. And yes, God can redeem us, but we could be far gone in our decision because God will allow us the freedom of choice. Where is God? Well, God is there, but he doesn't control Naomi and her family. The second thing that really is very important, God won't make us immune to suffering. Where is God? He is a God that won't make us immune to suffering. That's an important reminder because suffering entered the world when mankind fell into sin, right all the way back in the book of Genesis. And as a result of sin coming into the world, it's like a virus that infected human beings. And as a result, suffering came into this world. This was never God's plan. Any form of suffering that we see around ourselves in the world, that was never part of the original design. But because as human beings, we rebelled against God. We thought we knew better. We turned our back to God. We wanted to have it our own way. God said, you can have it our, your, your own way, but there are consequences to that. And the consequence of sin is suffering in this world. But you know, if you look at Naomi's family, it was riddled with tragedy. They have to flee the country and they go into Moab and first the husband dies and then not just one but two both the only two sons that Naomi had they die as well she finds herself as a woman that's a widow and lost two of her sons a woman living in a patriarchal society with no means of income living in a foreign country that's a tough place to be suffering is real and in many ways, it remains a mystery. I don't understand suffering. I don't understand the whys and why some suffer and why some people don't suffer. I don't understand it. It's such a deep mystery. But one thing is for sure from the story of God, Ruth, here. We find that God won't make his people immune to suffering. That's a really important lesson to learn because we tend to live with formulas and sometimes people are under the false impression that just because they follow God, just because they are Christians, they will be immune to suffering. We have one of the most upstanding, morally godly man that ever lived in the history of mankind. His name was Job. And God has, in the, in the spiritual unseen world, has his wager with Satan. And Satan is saying to God, he only loves you because you are good to him. And God is saying, it isn't that because that wouldn't be a proper relationship with God. That would be a selfish transactional relationship where I'm in a relationship with God for what I can get for myself. And God is trying to wager Satan and he's saying, I'll prove you, he's not like that. And Satan is allowed to come and strike Job with loads of means of suffering. And his friends have a very clear paradigm of how suffering works. They think it's because he sinned, that's why he's suffering. God is punishing him. And he was as far from the truth as it could be. And very often we can have these formulas in our head that either because I'm a Christian, I will never suffer, 
or because somebody suffers, they must have done something wrong. And that's just blown as a theory out of the water. The truth is, God won't make us immune to suffering. He didn't make Naomi's family immune to suffering. And he will not do that in our lives. Jesus is suffering way beyond what he should have suffered by just giving his life on the cross. He could have had, you could have just had Jesus simply dying on the cross, but he's going through the torture of being beaten up. He is going through the challenge of being rejected at every level, physically, emotionally, spiritually, Jesus is deeply suffering. Our master, our savior, he experienced suffering. The scriptures are riddled with suffering. Peter and John, you, you might be saying, well, that, that was just something that Jesus had to go through. No, Peter and John, who are the leaders in the early church, are being arrested and persecuted because they follow Jesus. The Apostle Paul is repeatedly being beaten up and chased out of town and sometimes even almost stoned to death, arrested, persecuted. Stephen, one of the leaders of the early church, is being stoned to death. What was the wrong thing that he did? He was serving Jesus and preaching about Jesus, bringing good news to people. Can you see it? The God in the book of Ruth and the God that we believe in is a God that won't make us immune to suffering just because we are his followers. And that's a very important pastoral reminder for us, particularly in this time in a pandemic when we could be tempted to question why this is happening and why this is even happening to maybe ourselves or people that we love. We've got to be careful not to embrace prosperity theology, which oversimplifies things. Yes, we believe that God has power to heal. Yes, we believe God is doing amazing things. The discovery of the vaccines are signs of his wonderful love and grace. But let's not remove the mystery of suffering. And let's learn how to support one another and not write people off and not make simplistic judgments and formulas about suffering. The reality in the book of Ruth is you see a God who allows them to make their own choices by not controlling them and a God who allows them to go through suffering. He doesn't make them immune to it. The other truth that you see about God is God often works through people. Again, it doesn't seem like God is doing anything. It's not like God is intervening into the situation. It's not like you hear this booming voice in the book of Ruth where God is saying to Ruth and Naomi, this is what you have to do. It's not as if Boaz has this dream while he's sleeping where God is speaking to him and saying, you have to go and marry Ruth. No, but where you see God at work, is through people. God, in such a wonderful way, when Naomi is seeming hopeless, when her whole family is being destroyed, God has somebody that comes alongside Naomi. In the most unlikely hero, in the most unlikely candidate, in the person of Ruth, who instead of going and rebuilding his life and staying in her own nation and being with her own people, and staying in the place of safety chooses risk and hardship in order to support her mother-in-law. 
an unlikely person that is willing to be the resilient, helpful friend that comes alongside. What's God doing? What is God like? He's the giver of gifts. And sometimes the way God intervenes is through people like Ruth coming into Naomi's life. It works the other way as well. Ruth could have been devastated. She lost her husband. She didn't have any children. Her life was a mess. But she has, as she commits herself to care for Naomi, she has in Naomi a wonderful mentor who's able to guide her as she's coming into another culture. And then you have Boaz, who is willing to come as probably an older man. Maybe somebody who wasn't the best candidate, being a little bit of a distant relative. He's able to come and support this family that was so hurt by loss and grief and bereavement. And he comes and he connects with an unlikely person. He was a foreigner, a Moabite woman. But he's the one that makes the step, the first step, to try to form this wonderful family that we're going to see being formed next time. Can you see what God is doing? He's using people, all of the people in the story. Be it Naomi, be it Ruth, be it Boaz. All of them are being equipped and used by God to be an encouragement and a blessing for other people. That is so amazing. And let me tell you, they are un likely heroes. Everything about them, if we didn't know how the story was going to be written, would have made us say, there is no hope. Yet in the midst of hopelessness, God sends people who are able to be an encouragement and a help for one another as they're trying to figure out how to navigate the stormy waters of suffering and hardship in a hard season. Let me ask the question in this season, and maybe it's a question that I flip. The temptation that I have is to ask the question, who's looking after me? Who's there for me? But I want us in this season to realize that God can work through us to bless other people. When people are crying out and saying, where is God? God might say, I am sending a person to you. How about you and I being those kind of people that God is sending? How about us leaning in and listening to what the Holy Spirit is saying and showing us who we can be an encouragement to? Just like Naomi was a mentor, who can you be a mentor and an encourager to? Just like Ruth was a younger, stronger, resilient, faithful helper to a lady that was in grief, who can I be a younger, stronger, resilient helper? to somebody who would be struggling. Who can, be a, uh, who can I be a Boaz to? Maybe I can reach to somebody who is coming from another country, maybe somebody who isn't like me, maybe somebody who I wouldn't normally cross the fence to connect with, an unlikely person. Who is God sending me in order to communicate to them, that he loves them and he cares for them. Because that's how it works in the story of Ruth. Last but not least, if you're asking what is God doing in the story of Ruth, God is redeeming tragedy. This is the hallmark of the whole book of Ruth and the hallmark of the character of God throughout the book. God is a redeemer. 
God turns the tragedy that a family went into the most beautiful triumph you could have ever imagined. You see, nothing is final until, don't say the fat lady sings, nothing is final until God says so. We are tempted at the beginning of the story to embrace the tragedy and the brokenness and the hopelessness that is in there, but that isn't the end of the story. The end of the story is right at the very end where we see God bringing two unlikely people that have been marred by tragedy and out of their marriage, out of their relationships comes the ancestor of Israel's greatest king, King David. And by casting forward into time, the greatest king of kings, the Messiah, Jesus. Why? Because God is a redeeming God, a God who redeems tragedy. Humanly speaking, we would have said at the beginning of the story, there is no hope. Naomi was absolutely filled with grief. Naomi had no family. Naomi had no legacy. It was all finished. There was nothing for her. We could have said the same thing about Ruth. Ruth would have been just left to be a woman whose life was struck by tragedy in her younger years. And she would have stayed a Moabite. But instead, God turns the heart of this Moabite, foreign, godless woman into somebody who loves him and serves his purposes. Can you see what God is doing? That's because God redeems. God enables Boaz to be able to become the kinsman redeemer, to become the family relative that gets involved into the story and takes Ruth as his wife. And a new family is formed. And a wonderful line going all the way to the Lord Jesus is being started. Why? Because God is a redeemer. And I love how God takes this people that individually look like broken, hopeless, struck by tragedy people, and he makes them such influential people in the history of Israel and in the history of salvation. It is all because of God, not because of them. Yes, they play their part and, and, and they are co-workers with God, but it's a God that redeems tragedy and works in an incredible way through bringing this miraculous change in their lives. We need to hear, I need to hear this message that God is a redeemer. God is the God of turnarounds. God is the God of new opportunities. In this season of COVID tragedy and hardship and frustration, we would do well to take heart and remember that God hasn't had his final word. And what might have been an incredible tragedy could be turned into an amazing triumph as God the Redeemer is at work, whether that's personally, whether that's for us as a church, whether that's for our community, for our nation, for the entire world. I don't know how, but I know that my God is a redeeming God. So my encouragement to us, as I talked about this God that gives us the freedom of choice, this God that doesn't make us immune to suffering, yes, this God who's using people as his agents of change and blessing, this God who's a redeemer God who can turn tragedies into triumph, 
I, I want to say to you, do you know this God? The greatest gift, as we're approaching Christmas, I, I, I think probably none of us are thinking too much about gifts. The, the, the whole Christmas season is so different this year. But if you're thinking about a gift, I want to say the greatest gift you can ever receive in your life is to open your heart and welcome this God to be your God. To welcome Jesus, the one that was born out of Ruth and Boaz, unlikely people, to be your Savior and your Lord. That's what the Christmas season is about. Jesus coming into our dark, messed up, sin-filled life and bringing that light of salvation and hope and forgiveness. So I want to ask you the question, really simply, do you know this God? Is this God the God of your life? And if not, can I invite you to welcome him into your life, to let him be your saviour and your king? Over the summer, I got my bicycle out of the shed and I needed to try to get to the shops really quickly. And I realized it didn't take me pedaling too far, that I was really struggling. Everything seemed to be really difficult. And I thought to myself, well, it's probably the COVID um, extra weight that I gained. Or maybe I just thought I'm less fit than I was. But it wasn't that. As I carefully looked at my tires, well, this bike had been in the, in the garage for, in the shed for quite, quite a few weeks and months. I realized that the air had gone out. You see, it's kind of crazy because I didn't let the air out. It just gone out. And without the air being in the tires, I, I, I couldn't really pedal too far. And everything was heavier, harder, more complicated. I needed to get a tires pumped in order to actually use the bike in the right way. It's a little bit the same in our relationship with God. Most of us who are watching this are followers of Jesus. It's somehow, if we're really honest at the moment, spiritually speaking, our life is pretty sluggish. We're struggling. We're struggling to make progress. It just feels hard work. And it almost feels like the air has gone out of the tires. You didn't let it out. I didn't let out the air from my tires on my bicycle. It's the same spiritually. We don't make any efforts to try to let the air out, but somehow it just seems like it's just going, hard going. It's difficult. Can I encourage you to refresh your relationship with this God? With this God that is the Redeemer. With this God that is so wonderful. At this Advent time of the year. Maybe this is a time to lay down your life again, to welcome him into greater intimacy with you, to seek his face, to lean in to hear his voice, to give your heart afresh to him. It's the best thing you can do as you're approaching Christmas. So whether it's for the very first time saying, yes, God, I want you to have control over my life. I want you to be king and savior in my life. I want to welcome you. Oh, it is for a new season, a new opportunity. Why don't you?
just recommit your life to God again. This God that transformed tragedy into triumph because he's our redeemer. This is the best time to do it. Do it today, do it now. It's the best decision that you will not regret. Amen.